Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners, you're listening to Movie Oubliette, the continental spanning podcast with me, Dan, finally emerging from lockdown down here in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, finally emerging from boxes in Cambridge, UK. (laughs) In this podcast, we ponder over genre films, horror, sci-fi and fantasy because aliens. That's it. Aliens. Conrad, how are you? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) I am very well. Even though I had a little bit of a scare, I was pinged by the NHS app this week. Oh, oh, yes. Which meant that did you get tested? I yeah, I did. I I used a lateral flow test. It was one of these ones where it was somebody logged into a venue at the same day as me and then tested positive. So I had to test myself, but. Yep, negative, touch wood, still holding in there, even though I am venturing out to the cinema quite regularly now because there's so many great things to see, like mm. Dune, which I'm going to see tomorrow. So. Oh, great, 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 great. Yeah. How about you, emerging from lockdown yes. at last? Yes, emerging from lockdown. Uh, Melbourne apparently is the city that has been locked down the longest uh, during the pandemic uh, with a total of 262 days. That in total that we've been locked down. Wow. Which, yep, that's that's us. That's been us for almost two years. Which is yeah, it's great. But it's good to be out of it. Good to get haircuts again. Um, <laughs> my wife doesn't have to cut my hair anymore. I can go to the <laughs> local barber. Yeah, uh, we haven't gone to a restaurant or cafe yet, but yeah, it's definitely on the cards. Yeah, got to get that brunch in. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> but it is only for the vaccinated, though. So we have to show um, the app on our phone to show that we are, in fact, vaccinated. Yeah. And didn't you say something to me about the special security feature they have on the app that I, I was pretty impressed by? Yeah. So on the app, they've put like a, a shimmer hologram effect on it so when you open up the app it kind of like blinks this kind of uh hologram service victoria symbol in the background similar to what you would see on on money or or driver's licenses when you kind of hold it up to the light there's like a a hologram that you see so yeah, yeah security features that's very clever so you can't just take a screenshot of somebody else's card and use yeah, it. yeah and just put your name where someone else's name is yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah doesn't yeah. work wow no that's really cool no we're not uh, in lockdown at the moment even though cases are soaring yeah as our I heard deaths that- I heard the health, uh, health uh, people are strongly advising that maybe a few restrictions should be put in place. But Yeah, maybe stop licking each other in public places. Yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. No, I think it's, I think the government's basic approach is, yeah, you're vaccinated. It's sink or swim now, everyone. Just go for your life. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah, right. Bit scary, to be honest. But, you know, we're just trying to be sensible, I guess. That's mm. what they're hoping for. Mm. Yes, right. Yeah, fun times. Well, have our listeners been sensible? What have they been talking to us about? (laughs) They're always sensible. (laughs) So we have a new review, which I'm very excited to read you because I love getting reviews on Mm. iTunes. Please do give us your feedback on iTunes or whatever platform you're using. This one came from Bailnorn85, titled Fun and Informative. Love that you guys focus on more obscure horror movies. Love even more that you're one of the very few podcasts anymore that manages to not talk about politics constantly and actually focus on what the podcast is about. Awesome work, lads. Look forward to more. 
Thank Ooh, you very much. Thank you. <laughs> we do dip into a little bit of political discussion every now and again. If it, yeah, if it's relevant to the movie, but yeah, we don't get pugged down in it because let's face it, you want an escape if you're coming to this yes, podcast. So exactly. and we want an escape too, frankly. Mm. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, always up for that. Thanks for the review. Yes, more reviews, please. We also heard from James Aronson, who I think may be a new listener. He's listening to our back catalogue, and he said, on Star Chase of the Legend of Orin, so I nearly had a fit in the car just now, was just listening to the Burnt <laughs> Offerings episode and the reveal that you were covering this. It must be one of my earliest memories of film rented it from our local spa as a kid spa okay. is a a a shop okay it's not the, it's not a place to <laughs> bathe yourself no it's no it's, it's not for jousting or anything like that no <laughs> oh i was thinking the like saunas and 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 <laughs> that sort of no spa. No, it's, <laughs> no it's got nara on the end no neither of those no it's a it's kind of a, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like a big grocery store, but I don't know. For me, it was always like the tatty cheap local one rather than oh. the really big good one. <laughs> okay, okay. So yeah, that brings me back. I love this film and can never find anyone else who's ever seen it. Downloaded the episode, of course. So thank you, James. I hope you enjoyed the episode because mm. that was a favourite of mine. That was a childhood nostalgia episode and it was a blast to talk to the composer, Andrew Belling. Yes, yes, it was. Yes. He, I remember he had really good audio. He did, yes. Being the composer that he was. He had an audio engineer, didn't he? <laughs> I know, he did. <laughs> I know, that's the first time we've had that on a podcast interview. But there we go. Mm. We also heard from Eddie Coulter, on what films Spookies reminded him of. And he said, the few films that came to mind when doing a rewatch, besides the ones that have been mentioned before, were House, House 2, The Second Story, Waxwork, Saturday the 14th, One Dark Night, and the TV movie, The Midnight Hour. Wow, I haven't seen any of those movies apart from House, which we've covered on the podcast. We did with Simon Barber, the yes. UK's resident house expert, who once watched House in the House in House. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and has the original paintings from the set, and mm. goodness knows what else. It's amazing. Check out that episode. Yeah, House 2, I would agree with. I've seen that, and that is much more of a fun kids' fantasy movie. So it's fun. Yes. We also heard from Reclaimers Vintage Toys on the man plunging headfirst through a closed door in Spookies. (laughs) (laughs) I listened to the episode first and then watched the movie, so I 100% knew that this was coming and I still laughed my ass off for five minutes when I saw it. Door! (laughs) So true. It's a great moment. It is, it is. (laughs) Uh, Denise takes on the taking of Deborah Logan. This movie is so scary. (laughs) Mm. I think I replied, agreed. Yeah. Not for you. I didn't. (laughs) Not for me, no, but it's great to see other people getting a real kick out of it. So it's good. And finally, we heard from one Serge of (laughs) Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Serge. (laughs) Hello, Serge. And he said about Deborah Logan, what am I going to do? Criticise the taking of Deborah Logan because it features every single possession cliche in the book. Clearly, everyone involved was a big fan of those cliches. Seems like the movie accomplished what it wanted. I think maybe I'm just not the target market. So there we go. Mm, Similar uh, opinion to you, Conrad. Yeah, I mean, I think you pointed out too that it has every possession cliche in the book, but you thought that everything around it made up for that, compensated for yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think it had every possession cliche. It didn't have the, the, the head spinning around or like, you know, um, weird <laughs> projectile cons- vomit. contortions or projectile vomit or, you know, levitating beds or anything. So I think no. it was sort of on the low end of cliches. Yeah, no, I think she just hops on a kitchen counter. She does projectile spit acid at one point, doesn't she? But that's bad. Yeah, her, venom, her, I don't know. snake transformation, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, thanks everyone for getting in touch. 
So, Conrad, what are we going to be doing today on the episode? Well, it's always exciting to find out. Let's wander over to the oubliette and open it up. And... Oh, yes. Oh, it's, it's a weightless environment in here. <laughs> Conrad, oh. what are you doing? You're floating. I can't control my attitude at all. <laughs> can you see the movie? Ooh. I can see a shoe. And a pair of spectacles. Ah, here's something. Right, I've got it. Okay. See if I can... Come back down. Let me kick off the wall and I'll come back. Okay. Oh, Travis, get away from there! Well, that was an experience. Nearly brought up my lunch. Oh, yes, yes. So, Conrad, (laughs) what do we have today? We have the 1993 American biopic science fiction mystery film Fire in the Sky. Mm Hmm? Okay. It's directed by Robert Lieberman with a screenplay by Tracy Torme based on Travis Walton's book, The Walton Experience. Mm -hmm. And it stars D.B. Sweeney, Robert Patrick, James Garner, Craig Sheffer, Peter Berg, Henry Thomas, Bradley Gregg, and, yes, there are some women, Kathleen (laughs) Wilhoit and Georgia Emmerlin. So, quite a cast. Mm. And what's this about? So, Fire in the Sky tells the true story of Travis Walton, a happy-go-lucky logger in a small town in Arizona who disappears for five days after an incident that his logging pals describe as a UFO encounter in the woods. The town grows increasingly suspicious that foul play is involved, especially involving bandana-wearing bad boy Alan Dallas, which puts a strain on the other loggers' lives and draws the attention of a cynical veteran investigator, Lieutenant Frank Waters. All that is until Travis reappears, naked, in a thunderstorm. Will the town forgive Travis's pals? Does he remember what happened to him? Will he have a lengthy, special effects-filled flashback cowering under the buffet table during his welcome home party? (laughs) Find out after the break. Oh, yes. Can't wait. Indeed. And we're back to talk about the alien abduction thriller Fire in the Sky. Dan, had you seen this film before? No, no, I hadn't. Actually, when you were listing the cast and you were saying, oh, what a cast, I don't think I'd heard of anyone (laughs) apart from maybe good old Robert Patrick T-1000 from (laughs) Terminator 2. Yeah. And everyone else, yeah, I don't... I think this shows my age, but too young. Yes, okay. No, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you've got Robert Patrick as Mike. He was the T-1000 a couple of years before, and actually he was really struggling to get cast as anything other than robots. Right. So he was really keen to take this role as Travis, his best friend, who has all of these sort of dramatic tribulations to go through with the town, sort of Mm -hmm. suspecting Mm -hmm. him and his family. So he was keen to show his dramatic chops, that he wasn't just an ice-cold lump of mercury. Yes. Craig Sheffer, I know from some kind of wonderful a John Hughes film okay. and also Nightbreed. Right, right. Peter Berg I know from Wes Craven's Shocker, uh-huh. but he has since become a successful director in his own right, directing things like... Deepwater Horizon? Yeah, Battleship. Oh, yes. That uh, <laughs> award-winning movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also things that are quite interesting like Hancock and Patriot's Day. Ah, so, yes. right. Yeah. You've got Henry Thomas, who, of course, was Elliot in E.T. <laughs> right. E.T., I don't know. It's not a beloved film for me. I did mm. watch it a few times as a kid. And, yes, I appreciate that movie, but I'm not a big Steven Spielberg fan. I find his movies a bit too soppy. And so, yeah, everyone always mentions actors and characters from E.T., and I just don't, I don't know. I know. <laughs> it's like this cultural landmark from the early 80s, and I'm exactly in the same boat as you. I don't like it. Yeah. I really don't. It's fine, but I think it's completely sappy. And at the time, I was much more into Joe Dante and Gremlins yes, sure, and sure, sure, sure. things that had a bit more of an edge 
edge to them and were a bit cynical. That was me. Right, so right, I look at right. this as a really solid cast of character actors. And it is very much an ensemble movie. It is very much about these five or six, is it six guys? Yeah, I think it's six loggers, yes. Yeah. When I was looking at the cast, there was one actor, uh, Kathleen Wilhoit, oh, yeah. uh, that plays Katie Rogers, mm. so um, Mike's wife. I watched it with my wife and she immediately recognized her from something. And she's <laughs> she's from Gilmore Girls. Oh, is she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she plays the sister of Luke. So the guy that owns the diner in Gilmore Girls. So, right. Yeah. It's the only other actor I recognized in this movie, everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit before my time. Yeah. She doesn't get much to do. No, she doesn't. Yeah. No. She's very much in the worried wife who's on the phone yes. kind of role. And that's it. Yes. Should we get into that? Yes. <laughs> we can get into that. I hate to say this, but it's a bit of a boys movie. It is. Like all the male characters have something to do. And all the female characters are just, like you said, the supportive wives or girlfriends or sisters or, yeah, yeah, the stressed side characters. And all the men are doing all the important work. Yes. And structurally, the film is quite odd. It's because very odd. <laughs> it's set up as a sort of a flashback from the opening titles. It's the point at which the loggers show up at a bar mm. looking shell-shocked. One of them is missing. They call the police eventually. The police show up and then they bring in James Garner. What's James Garner famous for? What sort of roles does he normally do? So he became big in a 1950s Western TV show called Maverick. Okay. And then was famous again in a detective series called The Rockford Files in the 70s. But he was also in a lot of big movies like The Great Escape and so on. So his oh, career was sort okay. of 50s, 60s, 70s. And then right. he would crop up in the 80s and 90s as this sort of authority figure or mm. a veteran or somebody's grandfather. He would take those sorts of roles. Right. And he was quite a well-respected actor. So it's great to see him in this cast. And he does a great job in that, mm. playing this sort of cynical detective that gets brought in for strange cases like this. But yeah, and structurally, he shows up and you've got this flashback sequence where they then start telling the tale up and to the point of the abduction. So that's act one. Act two is the whole town being suspicious of them because this guy's missing mm. and they think they've just killed him and buried him in the woods. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. Travis comes back at the end of act two and then act three is just... Travis's flashback and then there's a coda of two years later where everyone's still a bit shell-shocked and haven't really moved on from it mm. and then credits yeah so it's a bit odd <laughs> yeah it's, it's very strange I kind of wanted more of act one right like I kind of wanted more backstory more like the dynamic between Travis and Mike and their friendship and even some developing of the other characters in this movie there are six loggers mm. and you follow pretty much mike the entire time yeah and he's not that interesting i mean <laughs> dallas is more interesting as you know the drifter bad boy but all the other loggers they're just there i guess yeah i don't know <laughs> I think Peter Berg plays an interesting one. They refer to him as the choir boy. So he's the sort of moral one. He's right. deeply religious. You know, I never had trouble telling them apart because you have D.B. Sweeney, who's the happy-go-lucky guy who skips around and climbs up the sides of buildings rather than going up the stairs. Yes. And yes. he's full of dreams. He had a startling resemblance to um, Paul Rudd to me. Yes. Like, I just imagined him as Paul Rudd the entire movie. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good pull, actually. I did not make that connection, but you're absolutely right. I mean, D.B. Sweeney only took this role because he thought he would be able to get the role of Spider-Man. Oh, right. Oddly enough. Interesting. <laughs> I'll explain his logic. It's because, and we'll get to this, he knew that there would be a shit ton of wire work oh. at Industrial Light and Magic. And he knew at the time that this was around the time that James Cameron was hovering around a Spider-Man live action movie right, working right, with right. Karolko. It all collapsed in a massive litigation and rights okay. complications and then ended up at Columbia. And then we got the Sam Raimi movies mm -hmm. like a decade later. 
But he thought, if I go to ILM and I get this name for being, hey, that guy's really good on wires. And he did everything that was asked of him for five weeks over this really arduous shoot. He thought he might get the role of Spider-Man. But bearing in mind he was 32 at the time of filming Fire in the yeah, Sky. That's not going to work. <laughs> I can't see him getting the role of high schooler mm, Peter mm, Parker. Mm. No, I can't. But yeah. So you've got D.B. Sweeney. Peter Berger's the religious, upright guy. Henry Thomas, who just seems watery-eyed and scared the entire time. He's the kid, right? Yeah, he's the younger one. The 17-year-old, yeah. Yeah, Craig Sheffer as Alan Dallas, who's the bad boy with the bandana. Yes. The only one that I don't get much of a read on is Bradley Gregg as Bobby, who's like the other one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I... I could tell them apart. Yeah, they were distinguishable, but they had very almost like horror movie cliche characters. Yeah. Like the scared one, the religious one, the bad boy. Like yeah. they just seem very two-dimensional. There wasn't much to them. No, it's true. The movie did focus on Mike and I guess that was a point, the Mike and Travis relationship and their friendship. But I don't know. I, there wasn't much to hold on to. Like that sort of middle section of the movie was quite slow for me. Right. It is a different movie. It's the small town drama. Mm. It's, it's like a murder mystery, really. It is, yeah. So it turns into that, you know, with people fanning themselves in a church and getting concerned about things and, yeah, people giving them dirty looks in the diner. And I mean, that's one good scene that Catherine Will Hoyt has as Mike's wife, where he says, you know, I don't care what people think about me. And she says, well, you need to because it's affecting our kids. Mm. That's sort of really what the film is about. It's about responsibility and parenthood mm. and Travis is seen as too happy-go-lucky. He wants to marry Mike's sister. Mm. And Mike is telling him he's not ready for that and he's not responsible. And then by the end of the movie, it's sort of bracketed with two scenes with Mike and Travis. One where he's saying you're not responsible enough. And then one at the end of the movie after he's gone through this alien experience and Mike's gone through this experience of nobody trusting him. And Mike's become a complete recluse and his marriage has fallen apart. Mm. And Travis is trying to hold on to some element of his exuberance. You see him with his child. He is married to Mike's sister. He has kids. And he's still sort of a fun guy, but haunted. Mm. And the two of them reconcile that Travis doesn't hold Mike responsible for what's happened and vice versa. And that seems to be the film's resolution. Yeah. Because yeah. ultimately it doesn't have one, does it? I did find the sort of coda section, it seemed like there was a bunch of movie missing. Yeah. You can't go from like a very intense, traumatic alien experimentation flashback scene mm. to like two years later, he's happily married with two kids and a wife and it's happily ever after. I, I don't know. I felt like I wanted to see how did Travis cope with that? You can't go from like PTSD to like happily married and living in a, a house with kids. It just seemed implausible for mm, me. Yeah, you're right. And it's something that D.B. Sweeney mentioned in his interview on the disc that I have, that the thing that he was most interested in with Travis was the PTSD aspect that most prisoners of war, for example, they get two or three days where they're in hospital or they're on a military ship being transported home. Mm. You know, they get some time to sort of get to grips with life and recover somewhat mm. before they're reintroduced to their family and have to work through reacclimatizing themselves to normal life again. Whereas Travis goes through a supposedly ridiculous extraterrestrial encounter where yeah. that's incredibly stressful and terrifying. And then he's just dropped naked and wet back into small town Arizona again and just, yeah, yeah good luck. And he thought that was really interesting. And you're right, that's the movie that I wanted to see. That's act two for me. I wanted to see that. Mm, yeah. But we don't get that. Yeah, I wanted the, the sort of middle section of the town being suspicious to be just halved, mm. cut down significantly, and then having Travis being found and then him dealing with that experience yeah. as more of the movie. Yeah. I 
I really liked the Travis character mm. and having him disappear for a huge portion of the film kind of sucked the life out of the movie. It felt like, oh, right, yeah. Uh, like we were missing a character or maybe have more of a backstory between Travis and Mike having like maybe a extended flashback, not just the day of abduction, maybe like the week of abduction. So we get to know their relationship. Yeah, that whole flashback thing doesn't make any sense anyway, the way that it's set up, because what it looks like is that they start telling Lieutenant Frank Waters what's happened by starting at the morning and recounting this tale of how Travis was this happy-go-lucky guy that drove Mm. through town to pick up donuts from the donut shop on the sidewalk and then he crawled up the side of my house to talk to my sister. You know, I can imagine Frank Waters saying, oh, for God's sake, man, get to the (laughs) point. I I don't know. I mean, in a movie, I think that works, though, because us as an audience, we need that backstory, we need that exposition and that character description. I know. I know, but some of it looks a bit ridiculous. Yeah, I know, I know. It's oversharing, (laughs) especially when you cut back to Frank and he says, what was that whole thing with the chainsaw? And you think, so hang on, you went through the whole logging montage (laughs) and told him about the bit where Craig Sheffer was, uh, sorry, I should say Alan Dallas, was really suspiciously antagonistic towards Travis with a chainsaw. You thought that was a good idea? Mm. Or are they just showing a movie and he's watching it? I just, some of it just doesn't hang together for me. (laughs) Right, right. I did like the setup at the start though, because it it was quite ambiguous. Like, why are they driving crazily? Like, what secret do they have? Like, if you didn't know this was an alien abduction movie, they really set it up. Mm. Like, I had no idea what was about to sort of unfill. Yeah. And I do like the fact they do the same thing that they did on Flight of the Navigator, where you keep having these red herrings. Like, you have the blue god rays through the woods and it turns out that it's a car. Or when you introduce to Frank Waters, you get the red lights going over his windscreen. Yeah. And that's even at a railway crossroads, Mm. um, which is a direct reference to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So the movie is aware of the tropes that it's walking into and it kind of gives you a sense of no this is going to be a slightly more serious movie Mm, maybe mm, a little bit more low-key yeah yeah i I mean shall we talk about the presentation of the aliens Mm. there are only two scenes of alien yes in this movie i mean one of them is quite extensive but if you're going into this movie thinking, ooh, alien abduction, you're going to be very, I mean, maybe satisfied, especially with that final scene. Yeah. But maybe disappointed because there is much more drama than sci-fi in this movie. But yes, the first scene with the spaceship, I was really impressed. Yeah. It's not what I expected. No, it's not. And it's definitely not going for obvious stuff, like even when he's hit by an energy discharge or something. There's no animated, rotoscoped, glowy stuff. It's just a beam of light Mm. that hits him. It's really sort of downplayed and not too showy. It sort of keeps itself fairly constrained in terms of its special effects until you get the 12-minute industrial light and magic flashback sequence, and then it really goes to town. I mean, that whole sequence is a whole other movie, isn't it? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, I keep just exclaiming profanities. <laughs> Jesus, what? <laughs> and it just keep escalating yeah. way further than I thought it would. And, yes, the effects just spectacular. Like, yeah. I think it would have really destroyed the movie if the effects weren't as good as they were, mm. especially in that final scene. It's, oh, like you've described with movies, having a good final scene kind of dictating how good the movie was. Wow, that scene. Yeah. Like, I've never seen anything like it. No, and I think it's influential. I mean, if you think of the guy waking up inside a cocoon and forcing his way out and then finding himself in this enormous cavernous space with lots of cocoons with 
rotting humans in. And then you think of The Matrix a few years later, mm. both of them with cinematography by Bill Pope, oddly enough. Yeah. So I think there are some things in there that are quite influential and all of it's practical. There's mm. no CGI. The only thing that they use CGI for on this movie was wire removal. And they disguise the wires on the waitlist stuff because the set's upside down, the camera's upside down, the actor's upside down. Wow. So you never know which way is up, which is a trick we saw on one single shot on Outland with the oh. dead body in the zero gravity right, room. Right, right, right. Where I said, yeah, it's actually upside down, the wires are going downwards. So with this, sometimes the wires are going out the side, sometimes they're going out the top, the bottom the left and it's all to throw you off and that's why that sequence is just so disturbing and weird mm. and completely believable in terms of, i've never seen wire work as good as that yeah yeah and also because it's quite well lit mm. as well it's not hidden in shadows you can see everything yeah and you're just constantly going how are they doing this? <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's great. And the whole sequence where he's subjected to the examination on the table, it's, again, not quite what you're expecting. Yeah, It'd be, it's exactly. It's not the obvious. I remember it knocking me for six the first time I saw it. I was so lulled into a sense of security by the boring small town drama that when you suddenly got 12 minutes of that, pff, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even how they restrained him, like they don't just strap him to a table. They put this weird sheet over him that just suctions him to the table. It's, it's like <laughs> yeah. really creative. Yes, because Industrial Light and Magic, they had a vacuum-formed plastic table and somebody looked at it one day and thought, hmm, that'd be a really interesting way to restrain somebody. <laughs> so that's what they did. Mm. That, oddly enough, is the one shot that isn't D.B. Sweeney, is the shot where the camera pulls away and the person is completely covered in vacuform plastic. It's a stunt person or somebody from ILM oh, wow. because it took four hours to glue it all down and he, oh, wow. <laughs> he didn't think he could put up with that. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. I mean, towards the end of that scene... It's horrifying. Mm. Like he gets his eye pried open and all this milky liquid all over him. And then the sheet membrane is sliced open. And then this needle just gets uh, closer and closer and closer. And yeah. it's, oh, it really sticks with you. I can't even imagine kids watching this at the time. They would have had nightmares. Yeah, they really would have done. And the design of the aliens, too, I really like. They're just sort of... Not what you expect? No, not at all sort of weird, wizened old men kind of yeah. things. It kind of reminded me of stuff like, I don't know, Dark Crystal or something. Like more yeah. of a fantasy depiction of an alien rather than sci-fi. Mm. It was real funny, though, when he first descends into that other chamber... And it's got, it looks like the aliens are all strapped up, but it turns out that it's their spacesuits. Oh, yeah. And it's the cheesy, <laughs> you know, depiction of an alien with the black slanted eyes and the silvery skin and stuff. Um, and it, it's just like their astronaut suits. Yeah, <laughs> I really like that as just like a, another, let's set up an audience expectation. It's the big yeah. eyed aliens. Yeah, the greys as they're called. Mm. And then, oh, no, that's their spacesuit. That was the director's idea. Mm. And the fact that there's no anal probing either, because uh, yeah. that always seemed to be a feature ever since the first sort of recorded case of abduction. Mm. It's kind of a cliche. Right. Whereas with this, it's not clear what the aliens are trying to do with him. Mm. It's never explained. They're pretty unreadable, their faces. There's lots yeah. of articulation, but you can't really tell mm. from a human perspective what they're doing or why they're doing it. Right. And yeah. then they let him go, whereas other people seem to be just rotting in cocoons. Yeah, I don't understand <sighs> that. Yeah, when he bursts into that other cocoon, it's just the remnants of a corpse. It's, uh, wow, wow. Yeah. Crucially, all of that... It's either masterminded by the person at ILM who was the special effects coordinator, Michael Owens, right. who was, it's probably rude to say he was the B team. So basically ILM in 1993, they're busy on Jurassic Park. Right. So 90% of people are over in the secret CGI lab doing the Jurassic Park stuff. And then there's the B team of Michael Owens doing this weird little alien movie <laughs> over the other side of the office yep. and doing it entirely practically apart from the wire removal because they didn't have the resources to do anything mm -hmm. experimental with it. 
It's interesting because he talks about the fact that he completely came up with that whole story for the 12-minute abduction flashback sequence, Michael Owens. Right. And then the director on his commentary talks about how he came up with it after having a dream. Right, okay. So I don't know who is actually responsible because the way the special effects guy tells it, the director wasn't even there Mm, when they shot that sequence and it took five weeks at ILM's facility. Right. And I think he said the director visited twice whereas the cinematographer Bill Pope was there the entire time. Yeah. So who knows what's true, but crucially, it's a complete fabrication and it bears no relation to the account that Travis Walton detailed in his book. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what was his account? It basically starts with him being on a table mm-hmm. and he talks about thrashing out at one of the aliens and hitting them and they fell over really easily because they were so weak. Okay. And then he said that they went and fetched somebody who, I don't know, a higher authority and they came in and they were like a six, seven foot tall blonde human person. Like a human? Yeah. And they took him onto another ship and told him the secrets of the universe or something. I don't know. It's bizarre. Okay. Yeah. The director said, I can't turn this into the movie because I can't have Dolph Lundgren as the alien. I just can't do that. (laughs) So they just went with what became standard for the UFO obsession in the 90s. Because, of course, the X-Files came not shortly after this movie debuted. So Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Talking about alien abduction as a plot for a movie, there aren't that many of them. No. I was trying to think of some, and the ones that I found, Fourth Kind, of course, we've covered. Uh, And (laughs) then there were movies like Altered in 2006, Communion in 1989, Mm. Night Skies 2007, Progeny, which is the reanimator guy. Oh. (laughs) It's probably... Very slapsticky, yeah. Uh, and then Dark Skies, which I have seen. Oh yeah, 2013. It's much more of a horror with with alien elements. Yeah. The first half of it was good. Second half got a bit cheesy. Yeah. And then there are other movies like Under the Skin and The Forgotten. Yeah. But yeah, those weren't sort of as stereotypical alien abduction experimentation like this movie. Is it because it's delving into conspiracy theory, like crazy people territory, and it's not taken as seriously in terms of being adapted as a film? It could be. I mean, this is pretty much one of the most well-known true accounts of an alien abduction and Mm. then Hollywood just turned it into something else. Communion is oddly enough another one that's quite interesting so that's the true story supposedly of Whitley Stryber's experience. So Whitley Stryber himself is a novelist of science fiction horror tales things like Wolfen and The Hunger. Oh okay. And he just happened to be abducted by aliens as well. What are the chances? (laughs) Exactly yeah and then ended up being played by Christopher Wolfen in a late 80s movie, which I haven't seen. I would really like to see that one. Yeah, I would like to see that, actually. Yeah. Another one I'll mention while we're talking about it, The Vast of Night, which was a recent one, 2019. It popped up on Amazon Prime, and I watched it during lockdown last year. I really enjoyed it. Oh, okay. There's some really great long single shots in that that are quite fascinating. Right, 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 right. But you're right, you don't often get to see the people... I think Christopher Walken is strapped to a table and experimented on in that one. So I think there's that, and there's this, and there's the X-Files. And then everything else, like some of the other ones I found on IMDb when I looked for the keyword alien abduction, it's things like Flight of the Navigator. Yeah. And you think... Yeah, okay, that's true. He is abducted by aliens and then brought back, but it's he's not strapped to a table and probed. It's yeah, you know, it's it's not different. that type of movie. Yet. Yeah. And and I also feel like maybe because you know it is conspiracy. Maybe it's not real. It's just people being a little bit nuts. Um. So yeah, not taken so seriously. As well as you know, the adults being taken away by aliens. You compare that to kids being taken by aliens and it's like a wondrous fantastic oh yeah <laughs> uh, story adventure story and it's steven spielberg movie and it's that's fine yeah but when you have an adult he's crazy <laughs> yeah that, that's very true actually 
it's not taken very seriously now, these sorts of accounts. They yeah. tend to have been reviewed in retrospect as being things like sleep paralysis and the result of mental health issues. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. What would this movie be like if you took out the alien scenes? If you took out the spaceship scene and just had bright lights mm-hmm. and then you took out the, the whole 14-minute scene flashback at the end? Like, what sort of movie would that be like? Yeah. Because you would question the guys. You would think, did they accidentally kill Travis? Yeah. Because you only know that they're telling the truth because you saw the spaceship. (laughs) Yeah. You saw that happen. Yeah. There are so many different movies you could do here. You could do He Disappears, They Come Back and Tell This Crazy Story, and the whole movie is the town suspicion story Mm. and legal case, and Craig Sheffer's character Dallas being picked out unfairly just because he's the bad seed Mm. from a family that always gets blamed for everything sort of like the chris chambers character in stand by me that whole story Mm. you could have gone that route yeah the effect on the family then when travis comes back he's just got ptsd and rambling about aliens and you don't see anything so you don't know whether it's real or not Mm. that's a whole other movie or like you mentioned actually show that scene and focus on Travis's experience and the PTSD and how he comes to cope with it. I mean, one of the things I find most interesting about the film Room is that the whole portion of the movie where the mother and the child are abducted and kept in a single room for a large portion of their lives, that's like act one. Mm. Okay, there's the exciting escape, but the rest of the movie is how do they learn to live with this? And there's a significant chunk of the movie that's taken up with that, and it's really interesting. Yeah, I've read the book, actually. Me too. one of the (laughs) few movies I've read the book. Yeah. I'm pretty sure on the book, that is a bigger chunk. Mm. Their confinement is a bigger chunk of the book. Yeah. And when they get released, I felt the book kind of pitted out. Mm. It was very interesting and, and the way it was written from the perspective of the boy with his terrible grammar and weird English. Yeah. And then they escaped and then it just nosedived. And I was like, oh, this is boring now. Oh. <laughs> but... In the movie version, adaptation was actually interesting Mm. how they got reintroduced into society and dealing with the outside world. Yeah, and a real challenge to make that interesting and compelling when Mm. normally a movie would end with the escape and a happily ever after coda where they're all happy again. Yes. Which is kind of what they try to do with this movie. Yeah, they do. Here's 12 minutes of really traumatising and excellently executed horror. Yeah. And then you just get one coda where everybody says, well, it wasn't your fault it happened. No, it wasn't my fault either. Oh, never mind. Let's just have a nice life and make a weak joke about aliens they're not coming back because they don't like me very much Mm. ho 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 roll credits yeah and it just doesn't work for me because there are so many threads Mm. like the brother's antipathy there's the whole thing where mike's older brother is looks like he's going to have some sort of violent altercation or cause some sort of problem right for mike that goes away. Yes. Uh, the town's suspicions, the threat of some sort of legal action, all the polygraph testing, that just comes to nothing. As soon as Travis comes back, basically the wind just drops out of this movie. Mm. And then you have 12 minutes of terror from another movie that was directed by ILM, it seems. Mm. And then a character coder, and then you roll the credits, and it's all very uneven and quite unsatisfying, I think. Yeah. I mean, it definitely doesn't have the conventional three-act structure in terms of, well, balanced three-act structure. Mm. The second half just seems to go too quick. Yeah, it does. And it shows that, I mean, the director talks about how he wasn't interested in science fiction, really. Right. And he just wanted to make it a drama. Yeah. And I think that's what he did. Because he did mention, I think he mentioned that the main theme of the movie was... was Alienation? Right. So the sort of alienation, uh, <laughs> I know, it's his words, not mine, yeah. between Mike and Travis and their friendship and how they got alienated and also the townspeople to the six loggers and their alienation. And I, I do feel like the movie tried to do that, but there didn't seem to me as much resolution to all of that. No. It just, yeah, like you said, everything is dropped off and... 
everything's fine now, two years later. Yeah, all of these potential sources of conflict are set up and they're never resolved. Mm. It's basically a room full of Chekhov's guns. And no one uses them. <laughs> Nobody uses them. And then there's a 12-minute alien sequence and then the credits roll. It's yeah. a very odd movie. And for yes. something that touts that it's based on a true story, it's not even an accurate reflection of Travis Walton's yeah. story. Because I, I was trying to analyse this movie in terms of like characters and plot, and I did come to the conclusion that maybe because it's a true story, because true stories aren't perfect stories. No. They're not balanced with character arcs and that sort of thing. So I thought maybe that's what made it a little bit clumsy in its narrative, but they change everything anyway. Yeah. They made it clumsy with their decisions. Yeah. (laughs) Now it's time for Random Trivia. So Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you discover down in the woods today? (laughs) Uh... I, I think you probably already know this, but the real <laughs> Travis and Dana Walton make a cameo appearance in this movie. Oh, uh, it's yeah. the scene in it's at the town hall. So all the townspeople are in this big hall or church, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, they're having a big uh, debate about the whole situation. And they can be seen seated in one of the pews. Uh, Travis is, has got a, a brown vest on and he's got like a red beard and his wife uh, Dana is sitting right next to him with blonde, quite poofy hair. And yeah, oh, the yeah. real Travis and Dana Walton. There they are, in the flesh. Mm. Yeah, even though I'm not sure he was entirely happy with the movie when it came out, but yeah, yeah, he lent it some sort of endorsement by appearing in it at least. I mean, he he let them use their real names. I mean, it's got to say something. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. And that's our trivia. Yes. So I guess the only other thing that we usually talk about that we haven't talked about so far is the music. Yes. By Mark Isham. I really liked it. Yeah. (laughs) He's not really known for this, or at least he wasn't known for this sort of thing at the time. He's sort of pretty much known as, you know, small drama, light stuff, and also known for his background in jazz. Right. So he'd not really done something like this before. I mean, he's since done all kinds of genres and all equally well, I think. Yeah. So Mark Isham, the composer... I hadn't heard of him. I looked him up. Uh, He's done some really good movies like Jesus and the Black Messiah, Point Break, Warrior, The Black Dahlia, Bobby. But the only ones that I've seen, I haven't seen any of those movies, are his kind of trashy ones. So I've seen Blade. (laughs) Right. Time Cop. (laughs) Oh, gosh, yeah. (laughs) And Next and The Mist. I mean, The Mist is not trashy, but yeah. He has uh, done an array of different films. Um, This movie, it's very orchestral, which is what I liked. Yeah. He could have gone down the cheesy-ass synth route, but he didn't, (laughs) which is nice. Like, I felt like the movie was much more grounded and more connected with human emotion. Yeah. Because it was orchestral and more acoustic. Yeah, which I think was what the director was looking for. So it's kind of why Mark gets hired to do this movie that he doesn't normally do. And then as a result of that, starts getting science fictions like Time Cop to do later on in the decade. So yeah, yeah, it's a good sort of leapfrog for him. I mean, it's got that sort of low key, but heartfelt orchestral stuff. It's got that sort of uh, menace motif. The brass. It's just going, din, 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 din. Yeah. Which gets <laughs> a little bit tiresome, but it's okay. It works. I think it works. Yeah. And then in the 12-minute abduction sequence, then he breaks out the experimental sound design, freaky composition, which he said the way that he worked on the movie was that he would spend half the day working on other scenes doing his normal stuff Mm -hmm. and then he'd spend the other half of the day working on this 12 minute sequence that he knew was just a beast wow and the result i think both of them work really well yeah i mean that scene the huge alien scene like every element of that scene works well Mm. special effects aside really unnerving sound design yeah and very like hyper real and huge Mm. like everything just sounds really close and intimate but really 
big at the same time. And yeah, the music integrated within the strange sounds as well. Yeah. Just great. <laughs> yeah, it is. Every technical aspect of the film is really good. I mean, a special shout out again to the cinematographer, Bill Pope, who managed to make the setting that, you know, the place they live, it looks really beautiful. I don't think it's mm. Arizona. I think it's Oregon that they filmed in. But it looks gorgeous. And then the alien, the flip side of that, the alien sequence is dark and terrifying and strange and organic and mysterious, but you can still see everything that you need to see. It's not dark. It's actually the opposite. It's actually very, very well lit. Like the aliens are never in shadow. No, that's true. They are in the light. And they are blinking and nodding and doing all sorts of things. And it's ambitious, actually. Yeah. Now, I was thinking of the big cocoon sequence. Ah, I mean, that is just yes, like yes, a yes, yes. hallway of black. But, I mean, you can still see everything. You can see I mean, everything, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's beautifully done. Beautifully done. It's a very well-crafted movie, mm. visually and orally, I think. Yes, Yes. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Oh yes, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite gravity-defying parts of the film in a number of scary alien experimentation needle categories. <laughs> Best quote. I found it really hard to pick a quote in this movie. It's all very normal ways of talking. Nothing really to pick out apart from the last line, which you thought was silly and <laughs> <laughs> stupid. But it's the only thing you, that really stuck out that you could uh, quote. It's and, and it's when Mike says, I'd like to get the hell out of here before they get back. And then Travis says, oh, they won't be back. I don't think they'll like me, which of course means nothing at all. But it's, <laughs> it's a line. <laughs> yeah. It is, yeah. It's a line. How about you? Yeah, the only one I noticed was another scene with Mike and Travis early on, probably written by the director because he was very focused on those two characters. It's where Mike says to Travis, you're a dreamer, you're not ready for marriage. And Travis replies, not if I have to turn into you. Mm. And I thought, that's it. An interesting thing to that say. Is a, that, that is interesting. He's trying to figure out a way that he can be married to Mike's wife and still maintain who he is as a sort of happy, free guy that sort of playfully tests boundaries and enjoys his life. Mm. So doesn't okay. quite pull it off, does he? Because he's just shell-shocked and miserable at the end of the movie. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Best hair or costume! I think mine is probably Mike's appearance at the end of the movie just because he turns into this grizzly wild man he looks like chris christopherson on a bad day he's got oh, like yes. tons of curly hair and an enormous beard and he's got a denim shirt on that he's pulled the sleeves off so that he's sort of i don't know you can see his bare arms and mm. yeah i don't know why he's decided to turn into that rather than being normal but he has <laughs> right yeah 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 i do have to mention the abundance of bolo ties i didn't even know the name of them but it's those ties it's the necktie that that's just like the two dangly bits with the metal tips oh yeah and yeah. The, the strange <laughs> sort of decorative uh clasp at the top um so they're called bolo ties i looked them up they were made official neckwear of Arizona oh. uh, in 1971 by the governor, Jack Williams. And uh, New Mexico passed a non-binding measure to designate the bolo tie as the state's official neckwear in 1987. And also in 2007, the bolo tie was named the official tie of Texas. Oh. So a lot of significance down south in America, apparently. Um, but yeah, a lot of people wearing that tie in this film. Yeah, I wonder why that particular tie caught on in southern states like that. Maybe it's more know. practical than, a, you know, the other tie that you tend to see when you're herding cattle or whatever. Yeah. Maybe it's... I'm not sure. Listeners, let us know. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Most 90s moment. Well, I was tempted to say the obsession with UFOs and alien abduction, but... I note that The X-Files actually debuted in September of 1993, whereas Fire in the Sky came out in March. So it's more 
the originator of a wave、oh, of interest in UFOs,、right. or the beginning at the beginning of、yeah. riding a, a wave of of interest culturally in that phenomenon. I don't know, but it's it felt like the '90s was all about the X Files and the truth is out there and yeah, greys and UFOs yeah. and alien abduction、sure. and men in black, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So trying to think of '90s things because this movie is set in the '70s, it's not very、yeah. '90s, and there wasn't that many sort of '90s film techniques either. Like it,、no. it did seem kind of timeless. Like if you told me this movie came out in the '80s, I would have believed you.、Mm. And because the score wasn't very '90s either or '80s, it was it was orchestral. It was very sort of cinematic. Yeah, like you said, the, the alien abduction as a plot. Was possibly the most nineties part of this movie. Yeah, favorite scene. <laughs> Will it be the same favorite scene, Conrad? I mean, I have to go with the the final alien abduction experimentation、yeah. sequence. I can't dismiss that. It's just that good. It's spectacular. Yeah, it really、yeah. is good. It's kind of like you have to sort of slog through. <laughs> An hour and thirty minutes of movie, and then you get the twelve minutes that you've been waiting for. Oh, But, yeah. My only other honourable mention would be Mike's scene in the、uh, the church. I, th- I think it's a church, the sort of town meeting. Anyway,、mm-hmm. I I thought as a vulnerable man who's trying to confront all of these conspiracy theories and these suspicions about him. By just calling on them by name and saying, you know, my kids go to school with your kids, and、mm. I thought it was really very moving. And I thought, well done, Robert Patrick, for taking a, a different kind of role and and not being an emotionless robot or alien,、mm. and showing us what you're capable of. And I thought in that scene he really did. I particularly liked the line where he says, you know, I wish we could have Travis back. But I can't control that, and I can't control what you think of me.、Mm. Most cliche sci-fi moment. I have a list. <laughs> I've got a few things.、Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll go through mine quickly, and then we'll get to your list. <laughs> okay. So yeah, radios malfunctioning in、uh, in sci-fi always, always, always. Oh yeah. Alien abduction movies. Well, I don't know. I haven't seen that many, but from watching Fourth Kind and this, they have very disturbing flashbacks. Always, <laughs> yes, <laughs> with like、yes. insanely loud sound design. It's very true. I had just sort of general movie cliches. So yes, there's the Asian tourists with cameras around their、oh, necks yes, at one point. Yes, yes. There's a point where the police say to a crowd of people, "There's nothing to see here. Go home." Has that、mm-hmm. ever really happened? <laughs> It does in movies all the time. Twas a dark and stormy night. The fact that Travis comes back in a、uh, rainstorm yes, in the middle of the of night. I don't think that's true. I think he woke up at the side of the road in the middle of the day. Oh, okay. There we go. Best special effect. Oh come on! <laughs> There's only one thing to talk about here, isn't there? It's the twelve-minute sequence from Industrial Light and Magic、yeah. that just blows your but, socks off. But which which part of that sequence was your favorite? For me, it was the wire work. As I said,、mm. I've never seen wire work this good, and it does the sort of thing with CGI that I think CGI does best,、mm-hmm. which is the invisible stuff. It's removing wires、yeah. so that you can do something practically on set and then hide all the evidence of how you did it, and then just leave the audience mind blown with the result. I love that.、Yeah. I thought the wire work was great. Yeah, it really was. Really was. I I was trying really hard to see wires. Yes, I couldn't. What's going on here? Like, how are they doing this? Yeah, I quite like the cocoons that that he was trapped、mm. in, like sort of really rubbery and yeah, I don't know, gooey and yeah, just gross. <laughs> It's all very organic, and the director says very much inspired by the work of Giger for Alien that it's also、ah. like organic and slimy and yeah. Yeah, it was favorite sound effect. I have to go back to the cocoons again,、uh, as well as、mm-hmm. them looking very organic and membraney. The sound really sold it for me. Just so. Rubbery sounding, and and when he bursts through, there's that really distinctive pop as he、um, yeah. frees himself.、Ugh, just 
It's really good sound design there. Yeah, that whole sequence has amazing sound design. I love how, like you said, it sounded sort of intimate and claustrophobic. And mm. then when he gets outside, it feels cavernous and strange and slightly yeah. organic, but also mechanical. Mm. I did have a sound I didn't like which is that the very first time you start to get little flashbacks of Travis's experience when he's being wheeled into hospital, every time it cross-cut to the aliens mm -hmm. sort of scooting him along into the operating room, there was this stupid metallic scraping effect oh, yeah. as it sort of cut back and forth from one to the other. And I thought, no, don't do that. That's so yeah. cheap. It's like in the fourth kind, isn't it? It is. <laughs> they had yeah, a really obnoxious metallic transition sounds in that movie. Yeah, they did. Most, Most funniest, funniest moment. moment. So there was only one thing that made me giggle in the movie, and that was when a kid holds up a newspaper ah. to Travis <laughs> yes. to get him to sign it. <laughs> Just that whole situation I found really funny, but it's the fact that the headline on the newspaper is Missing Snowflake Man Found. And it's it's the name of the town, but I hadn't yeah. registered that I up until this point. I hadn't either. I, and it wasn't until I was like, what does Snowflake mean? And then I realised the store was called Snowflake, and then the police yeah. badge has snowflakes on the police, the shoulder yeah. badge. It's like, oh... <laughs> But why is it called Snowflake? <laughs> Does yeah. it snow here? Why is it not snowing right now? Yeah, I don't know. But it just made me giggle that missing Snowflake man. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Snowflake has changed in its meaning yes, since really. 1993. Really, yes. <laughs> <laughs> When you were describing the funny scene for you, I thought you were going to mention a different scene. Uh, so it's when, I can't remember which character, they hold up a, a magazine. And the, the main title you're supposed to read is Nebraska Man Kidnapped by Aliens. But if right, I, I paused yeah. on that scene and you read the <laughs> other titles and there is a title that says How Mayonnaise Can Improve Your Sex Life and the other title is Man Marries Duck Caught Cries Foul and it's like who buys this magazine? <laughs> That's the National Enquirer. Yeah, oh it's full God. of that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's great fun, isn't it? Ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And that's our Mooblies. Yes, it is. Hi, I'm Bernard Rose, the director of Paper House, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. All right, it's that crucial time of the podcast. The final verdict should fire in the sky be launched out of the oubliette to abduct the human population and be marveled <laughs> by all, or should it be entombed in an alien spaceship and buried deep within the darkest part of the oubliette, never to be seen ever again? Conrad, fire in the sky. What's your final thoughts? It's really tricky, this one, actually, because I had seen it before and I remember it fondly, but I think it's just for the final 12 minute yeah. um, abduction yeah. sequence. I think the film is technically very well made. I love Bill Pope's cinematography, Mark Isham's music. It's great to see this ensemble cast of characters, of actors that I really like, especially Robert Patrick doing something with more emotional range than he's done before, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, or had at that point anyway. But dramatically, the movie just doesn't hold together for me. And so I kind of end up thinking to myself that I would say to people, yeah, watch the final <laughs> 12 minutes of this movie and don't worry about the rest. Or if you think that what we've described would appeal to you, it's not a bad movie. Mm. It's just that it's, it's trying to do too many things and it's not doing any of them very well. It sort of sets up a whole load of stuff for Act 2 that just gets dropped as soon as Travis reappears and then it turns into something else for 12 minutes. Mm. It's all very well made. It just doesn't all hang together. So I think if you're a genre fanatic and you love this kind of stuff, you won't be disappointed. I mean, it's as a depiction of alien abduction, it's you know fantastic. Mm. But I'm not sure it's a fully successful, fantastic film. So I think I'm kind of ambivalent, but edging towards no. Mm. How about you? Interesting. Yeah. It does have problems, this movie. Uh, mm. The plot 
the structure, the the lack of side characters or like in terms of detail with the characters and and I don't know whether I really bought the township. It just seemed like a whole mm-hmm. bunch of very disgruntled people <laughs> that just <laughs> frowned all the time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the alien abduction scenes were amazing. Like I've never mm. seen something so well put together and executed in in the movie like this and and alien abduction as as a topic is it's not an easy feat to sort of depict on screen without people either laughing or cringing so yeah i kind of have to give them praise for that like it's yeah and and the fact that it is not overly cheesy it definitely leans towards more drama than sci-fi and the middle section is a bit slow but I would recommend this movie. I think it does well with something that's quite hard to do, I think, in yeah. terms of content and, and, and that sort of story. So, yes, I would recommend this. Yeah. Okay. I think you're right. And I think, you know, I recommended this one. So, I mean, although I was disappointed with it, going back to it, I think seeing your experience of it for the first time sort of reinvigorates how I felt about it the first time I watched it. Right, so I think yes. I'll be ambivalent and lean towards <laughs> yes and, and okay. go with you because it's not a bad movie. No, it's it is not. It's a finely crafted movie. Yeah. It's just, I think maybe the scripts just needed, mm. yeah, they needed to find a structure and they, they didn't quite find it, but yeah. it's still interesting for all its elements, so... Yes. Yeah, let's let it go. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Be free. Let's just rip off that membrane. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Flee fire in the sky. <laughs> Yes, be free. So if you want to keep up with our future episodes, you can follow us on all our social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as MovieOubliette. And you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We love hearing from you, especially if you've had some sort of weird experience. Yes. And and if you're, you're a fan of alien abduction movies, recommend some other alien abduction movies that we should check out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there must be some more fine examples out there. We'd love to hear them. Yes, yes. And if you'd like to support the show, then head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can recommend a movie for us to do next time. And for $5, you get access to our exclusive minisodes, where we talk about new movies. Yes, like The Conjuring 3. <laughs> mm, yes. Yes. Find out what we thought about that movie. <laughs> Yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah, and as well as that, we have full interviews with our guests. Uh, recently, we did the interview with Bernard Rose, mm-hmm. uh, director of Paper House and uh, Candyman. And uh, most recently, we did an interview with Michelle Ang about Taking of Deborah Logan. So, yeah, please check yeah. that out, patrons. Yeah, the extended version has her talking about The Bad Batch, the Star Wars uh, series as well. Yes. So yeah, and how she recorded definitely that. Definitely worth checking yes. out. Yeah, that's fascinating. (laughs) So for our next episode, we're going to be doing a patron's choice movie. And what a great selection of movies they have nominated for us to put on the Oubliette Roulette. Oubliette Roulette. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an exciting mix, actually, because as well as different genres, we've got a lot of different time periods, including things from the 50s and 60s, which we haven't done very often, I don't yeah. think. No. Very excited to spin that wheel down if you want to dust it off and wheel it out. One second. Oh, just think getting heavier. <laughs> okay, let's give it a spin. What's it going to be? Oh, what's it going to be? Oh. Starman. Starman. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So this was nominated by Wicked Person. And yeah, this will be our second John Carpenter movie of the year. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. And our Great. second Jeff Bridges movie? Is that right? What was our other Jeff Bridges movie? The Vanishing? Oh, yeah. So he was also in uh, that thriller movie that we did with Jacob Gentry. Winter Kills, yeah. So we've done a couple of Jeff Bridges. He was, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Horseback. He was. (laughs) 
<laughs> he was. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. So we're back to the 80s and we're back to John Carpenter in his romantic sci-fi movie. Right, so, right, right. That's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. I actually saw this movie um, at the cinema. Not when it came out. I was too young. Right. But there was there's a cinema in, in um, Melbourne that plays specifically old movies. Uh, and uh, yeah, I got to see this on the big screen. Oh, wow. Well, I've never done that. So, But I have seen it. I've seen it quite often, actually. So, yeah. Be interesting to revisit yes. for uh, the podcast. So, yes. great. Great choice. Thank you for all the nominations. We will keep all of those movies on our list for future drawings. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. great stuff. All right. That's it. Yes. Thanks, listeners, for joining us for Fire in the Sky. We'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't run up the movie you'll be at. What was that whole thing with that chainsaw?